0: and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, we're going to be talking about community solar. And I'll tell you why I'm interested in this. I live on Vancouver Island, up the west coast of Canada, in a little city called Parksville. We're about 10,000 people. There's another community of another 10,000 not too far from us. And the larger city in our regional planning district is called the and it's got about 90,000 people. So the ca- total catchment in this region is probably about 150,000, give or take. And the regional government is undertaking a local energy generation study. And I've been very keen about this because the, the island uh, isn't part, at least as far as I know, not part of the broader provincial British Columbia power grid and it tends to go out once in a while and if we're going to be expanding power generation two to three times uh, as we electrify everything and this is what economic modelers have told me that's good good rule of thumb for economies like Canada and this will all take place by 2050 then Vancouver Island is a bit of a, a bit of an anomaly and what can be done to uh, grow lo- uh, local generation, and how do we? What are the uh, the options? And community solar just struck me as as uh, probably a perfect application here. So I'm going to talk to Casey Peters and Peter Protopapas from U.S. solar provider Pivot Energy about why they think community solar should be a critical piece of the of the decarbonization puzzle. They work in this field all the time. I'm interested. in in having this conversation. So welcome to the interview, Casey and Peter.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you. Well, Casey, let's start with you. Um, can you give us an, uh, just an overview of what community solar is? Because I'm, there's lots of folks uh, who are going to be listening to this and kind of like me, actually, now that I think about it. I don't know that I really understand community solar all that much. So what what is it?
1: Yeah, of course. Community solar is an alternative to doing solar on uh, your rooftop. Basically, it is when we put solar out in either a field or on an industrial rooftop or somewhere else within a community, and then individuals, either businesses, residents, organizations, you name it, they subscribe to that energy. So rather than having the equipment on site, they can get an energy bill discount, which is Traditionally, how it's done in the United States, um, different markets have it different ways, but they're allowed to leave the project whenever they want, come and go. Um, it's a really good way to democratize energy because you're not trying to finance the equipment yourself. You're taking advantage of a scaled project and um, being able to use that energy.
0: Well, that's interesting. Now, are they actually, uh, they're subscribing, you know, per kilowatt hour? Is that the idea? Or are they putting in capital and helping to finance the the construction of the solar farm?
1: Back in the day, it used to be that you would provide capital for the project. Um, Colorado was actually the first market to do community solar, and that's where I live today. Um, But we realized that in the United States, we finance with, or one of the big incentives is a federal tax credit and it became really complicated to try to have people give you know a few hundred bucks for a few panels and take the tax credit. um So instead, usually third parties own these systems, and then folks subscribe to it.
0: Okay, so it, the um, we have that we actually don't have it in British Columbia. Now this is an interesting situation because it's very different than the U.S. In Canada generally it's 10 provinces, and each province has a a provincial government-owned crown corporation, we call them here, and they're the utility. So British Columbia has BC Hydro, uh, Manitoba where I grew up, Manitoba Hydro. In fact, I'm a Manitoba Hydro brat. My dad worked for Manitoba Hydro for years and years, and I did for uh, some time in high school and afterwards. So... That's quite different than the U.S. Only Alberta has a really open wholesale market where, you know, if you build a, a solar farm, you have the right to plug into the grid. The, so that's it's a little bit different here, but I think changes are coming here. I, I think eventually the utilities are going to be forced by climate policy from the provincial governments. They're going to have to loosen up and allow community projects like this to uh, to uh, be developed. And I think, and to some extent, they already are indigenous communities here on the island and on the mainland uh, are already building solar farms. So there's been some baby steps, let's we'll call them in that direction. But who would be the developers? Uh, and then the reason I brought up Alberta is because they recently have had a, a big boom in solar because uh, banks, Microsoft, Amazon are going there and they're contracting with third-party developers to build and then they enter into power purchase agreements. So is it that kind of an arrangement?
1: Yeah, it's pretty much what you're mentioning. Um, it's third-party developers. Pivot is a developer and asset owner. And so we develop and own our own projects. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, not every utility has community solar. In fact, in the United States, Only 20 states have enabling legislation to be able to do community solar and of that, um, not all of them have working programs. So we have to pass legislation that forces the utility to be able to put credits on bills, and then we have to get through a regulatory proceeding to make sure that that program works. Uh, So we're trying to expand it all across the US, but it's only available in select states as of today.
0: Now that's interesting. Uh, is there a lot of interest? I mean, is it just that 20 states have got the legislation in place and the other 30 are thinking about it and interested in it? Or is is there maybe in some states, looking at you, Wyoming, Montana, you know, <laughs> we know the offenders, right? Is it that the other states just are politically and ideologically opposed to it?
1: Well, I'll talk about Peter's home state of Ohio. Ohio has been talking about community solar for a long time. We have a lot of bipartisan, um, so, United States is, you know, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, we have a lot of bipartisan support for community solar because it makes sense. Landowners like it, farmers like it. Um, obviously, people who care about the environment love it. Um, but there's a hurdle because the utilities don't love having to give up some of that control. Um, so, that usually becomes the sticking point. And uh, there are certain states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, a lot of those, um, what we traditionally call purple states that are sort of between Democrats and Republicans. Um, those have been the next frontier for community solar. Um, we don't really see a whole lot of movement in Wyoming or Montana or some of the most dirty states. Um, but I do think that the Inflation Reduction Act, that um, it's a big piece of federal legislation that was passed in the US recently, Um, that promotes solar areas that used to be big coal areas um, would really open the door for incentives and for those programs to flourish. So that's um, something that we're working on as well.
0: Sure. And what kind of uh, legislation is required to enable this to happen? Is it really that, you know, the the government basically has to take a stick to the utility and, and get them to open up the grid? Is that the problem? Or are there other enabling regulations that are required for community solar to 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 thrive?
1: Pretty much the first step is making sure that you the utilities will be able to credit energy bills. So it's not just that we're putting energy on the grid at wholesale. We have to be able to credit um, an individual users bill at a certain rate, and those rates vary um, in structure and in type. And that's why the, the it's a patchwork of community solar markets in the. US. But yeah, that first step is really saying we want community solar and the utilities have to credit um, whoever participates in in the program on their bill.
0: Now here's an a, 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 an angle to this that um, I'm curious to get your perspective on. Um, last year, I think it was last year, might have been the year before, no well, it was last year. the Alberta Electrical system operator. ASO uh, had done some a couple of years of consultations with stakeholders, utilities and big corporate customers, those sorts of things. And they produced a report, and there was all sorts of insights in there, if you knew what you were looking for. And one of <laughs> them that jumped out at me was, how much the utilities because there are four or five utilities in, in Alberta, I think how much the utilities are worried? about self-generation by big industrial and commercial uh, customers. You know, and the issue there, of course, is that, let's say you've got a pulp mill. The pulp mill puts up its own wind turbine or solar panels, and it basically self-generates, and it doesn't really need to be on the, the grid. It's a big corporate. That's a lot of revenue for a utility to lose, and then all the costs of the grid and they have to be passed on to the other customers so that raises prices for residential uh, customers and and for for business customers so that they're, they're really worried about that and when i think of community solar i think well you know what what if you had an industrial park right and you and you wanted to you wanted to green the electricity you wanted to lower the cost of electricity and Clean electricity now becomes a competitive advantage for everybody in the industrial park. So if you want to attract, you know, a client, maybe an industrial plant, maybe let's say like I don't know, battery plant, it's not a good idea or good good illustration, but some kind of some kind of business that would benefit from reliable, inexpensive, clean electricity. And there's lots of them around these days, uh, and and will be more in the future. Community solar just seems like a, such a great business development idea.
1: Well, I'll let Peter talk a little bit about um, using the energy more locally, but um, you're right. Uh, A lot of states are now saying, hey, come to us, we'll have third-party electricity. So it's happened a lot in states like Nevada, uh, where there's a ton of solar resource, and there's a ton of data centers, and obviously uh, casinos. And so those Uh, large users said, you know what, NV Energy, we're gonna take our own energy and we're gonna build our own projects. Um, I think the utility death spiral has been a little exaggerated. So I don't think it's going to to really collapse our entire utility market, especially as load grows when it comes to electric vehicles and electrifying everything. Um, But we are seeing that. And Peter, maybe if you wanna speak to um, some of those more localized applications,
2: Sure. So when you think about solar as a resource, it's it's inherently inefficient, right? It's not twenty four seven. And so when utilities and, and you mentioned they they didn't like this and certain sort of self generation, they have to be there when the solar is not generating. And so to to you know help with that inefficiency, you pair so, solar with storage. And what you're seeing in the U.S., especially in California uh, or the states that have highly incentivized not just community solar but just solar in general. Um, Illinois and New York, and California, three that I, come top in mind. There are highly now incentivizing storage, and and what that's too is to bridge the gap between the the load, the the solar on site or off site in a CSG situation, and the ultimately the base load that the utilities responsible for providing. So we're seeing that more and more in the U.S. that storage is being incentivized. Right now, the technology is limited generally to four hours. There are some other long duration. Um, but ultimately you have to bridge the gap between the mix of resources that are provided for that
0: load. I, I really want to talk to you about storage in this application, because the if there's one thing that I've uh, learned over the last three, four years of uh, doing these kinds of interviews, it's that the battery storage uh, industry, the space there, that might be the most innovative, uh, the, most, the biggest source of innovation in all of the clean energy economy. The, the uh, uh, new battery technologies that are coming on stream. And I just did an interview uh, last month with a CEO of a company that's going to introduce zinc ion for for uh, stationary storage. And now we're talking about uh, sodium ion and we're talking about, you know, uh, flow batteries, redox flow batteries. And I mean, uh, compressed air storage from HydroStore just had a billion dollar contract in California, Canadian company. I mean, the amount of technology, the amount of innovation that's taking place and the new technologies that are coming on on stream, they're just starting now. And I would bet a donut, that's my, sta- that's my standard line, I'll bet you a donut, nice. that that two to five years from now, storage is going to be so much cheaper, so much more ubiquitous. And there will be technologies available for each application. So you need four hours duration, eight hours duration, 16 hours duration. You need a week long, you need seasonal, maybe you get hydrogen. I mean, and that, how does that changing storage landscape affect community solar, Peter? So
2: the the thing about storage is you're trading electrons. You don't, you know, if, if it's balancing the grid, those are brown for brown. If you have community solar, you inherently have a, a higher resource mix that's green. And so there are new technologies coming on that you, know, you can actually assign the electrons of the kilowatt hours to some event and then match that with load. But because the load happens throughout the day and because the solar is only generating during the day, you would then have to match electrons at a different time uh, with that, that renewable resource. And so storage allows you to do that. And you're absolutely right. You know, four, eight, 12 hours, it seems to be that the 12 hour mark um, is kind of that ideal mix to get to 80, 90 percent penetration of renewables. But it's it's only driven by the need for renewables or clean energy and the, the consumers and everybody wanting that. And so storage is an enabler. And it, it, it really is a, a trading platform where you're going to trade electrons from one time to another different grid dynamics, make that valuable or not. And so that's really where it comes in is to, is to bridge that gap.
0: Are you installing uh, storage uh, technologies, whether it's lithium ion or whatever it is, are you currently installing any of that with community solar projects? So
2: right now we are beginning to the process to install those, those and we have a large uh, portfolio in Illinois, which will probably be the first market. And and that program is highly incentivized, uh, but it also is 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 solving that problem, right? The more penetration you have renewable, the less firm it is, and so they're incentivizing pairing that equally with storage in four hour or more duration um, that will be called on in those peak periods.
0: Okay, and uh, what kind of a time frame do you think we're going to see for rolling out storage with the uh, you know, community solar. Is that likely to be, you know, two years, five years, 10 years? How much further down the road?
2: Illinois is a good,
0: interesting case. Illinois,
2: uh, that's community solar market, which pivot has been involved in heavily for the past five or more years, has really front-end weighted solar installations. It's just now this year that those rebates have been finalized that are now incentivizing storage. So, that as fast as we can get it interconnected and built, that storage will be uh, coupled with solar. And so it's happening in that market today. If you look at New York, uh, there's a six gigawatt goal of storage to be paired with, again, a front end of wind and solar. In California, that's been uh, 10 years now that you have to match your solar or renewable resource with storage. So it's happening today, batteries are going in today. Uh, But to Casey's point, where I live in Ohio, there's a lot of geopo- this macro level pressures that will prevent innovation. But it 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 is a those markets that are open to it. It is happening today.
0: What about the economics of uh, of, of community solar? Um, I think a lot plenty of people like you know like the Lazard uh, levelized cost of, ener- of energy estimates. You know I keep everybody in this business keeps an eye on those and the learning curves, the cost curves have come down. It's, you know, over the last 12, 13 years at such a terrific rate. I mean, solar is now what around 21, $22 a, a megawatt hour for, for solar. Is that what you're seeing at the community level or does doing community solar raise because you're doing it on smaller scale? Does it raise the cost per megawatt hour?
1: Yeah, I'll take that question. Um, The projects that you're seeing at that $21, $22, those are more the utility scale projects. And to kind of maybe take a step back, um, community solar projects are designed to be on the distribution grid versus the transmission grid. So our projects are traditionally two to maybe 10 megawatts uh, rather than the hundreds that you've seen um, for utility scale. And then from there, um, we really look at what the bill credit is. And kind of try to meet that bill credit. So we typically see um, about a ten percent discount to bill credits. Bill credits can be anywhere between you know eight and eleven cents. So whatever ninety percent of of those numbers are are what we're charging our our um, our subscribers. But that also relies on um, incentives from the utilities to to. Um, be able to install those. So renewable energy credits, or other state incentives to be able to make sure that um, we can give that discount to those subscribers.
0: Okay, I'm not sure that I understand how that works. Um, Could you maybe uh, explain the credits that that are confusing? here? So are these under are these tax credits that are provided by state, the, the state government or the federal government?
1: Yeah, I'm sorry, I I should have explained that better. Um, It's basically your energy bill credits. So um, in community solar, you actually get two bills as of today in most markets. So you get, just like you would have rooftop solar, you would have an energy bill that was significantly lower than before you subscribed. And then, because they would credit your energy bill um, a certain dollar or a certain cents per kilowatt hour. So they'll say, great, let's say the full cost of retail energy is 10 cents. We're crediting you 8 cents per kilowatt hour because the state created a, a, a program that said, community solar is worth 8 cents a kilowatt hour. So they'll credit you that. And then there's a secondary bill that the community solar provider sends to you for about 90% of those credits. So, you know, it comes in around six and a half cents that we're, um, we're billing you for that. So your Delta is a 10% savings um, to that bill credit. It's uh, unfortunately one of the, the biggest drawbacks to community solar is this two bill process. Um, we're seeing markets like New York and Oregon experimenting with a single bill. So the utility is just in charge of sending you a bill for six cents a kilowatt hour. Um, and so that's, so the resident can understand that that's a very easy savings from their 10 cents. And it's, Really straightforward, but it depends on whether the utility is is willing to do that or not.
0: Right. Well, hopefully they do that. Uh, they figure that out here in in British Columbia because it was it is it does sound a little confusing. I can see why consumers are uh, uh, you know that might be a, an issue for them. Um, so, give me uh, a, a number a kilo per kilowatt hour that the average community solar customer or subscriber would have to pay compared to what they would get from the utility.
1: Yeah, that's just going to vary market by market. But again, if the average credit is, let's say the average bill credit is $0.08, then they're paying 90% of that or about, what is it, $0.07, a little less than $0.07 per kilowatt hour. So in traditional markets, like when we have a traditional PPA, Um, we say, all right, cool, you're paying $0.05 a kilowatt hour this year. It's going to raise by 2% every year, right? And that's why you really care about what that kilowatt hour price is. In community solar, we've decided to skip that part because having two bills is already confusing. And it's uh, kind of scary for a resident to sign a 20-year contract that says we're going to pay a 2% increase every year. So instead, we just tie it to that bill credit. So if the bill credit uh, if inflation happens and, you know, your energy bill goes from 10 cents to 20 cents for some crazy reason, you're still saving 10% of whatever that is.
0: I'm still confused. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I confess I'm still confused.
1: It's a fixed It's a fixed discount versus a fixed price. So okay. whatever. So if
0: I get, if I'm paying 20 cents, just hypothetically, mm-hmm. I'm paying 20 cents a kilowatt hour uh, for my home. And then I essentially get a credit onto that on that twenty, you know, could be eight cents, could be ten cents, and I get that credit from the that because I subscribe to Community Solar.
1: Yes, and then we charge you ninety percent of whatever that credit is. So we're always giving you a ten percent discount to whatever the utility is charging you. So you're always saving money is kind of what the answer we give to all of our subscribers. Um, you're always saving at least five dollars a month. Um, it's basically like having one free energy bill a month, or uh, sorry, a year.
0: Okay. Um, okay. I'm beginning. I'm beginning to get the the picture here. So, yeah. but I have to say, ten percent doesn't sound like a lot. And is that enough to make people switch over? Is it enough of an incentive?
1: Yeah, we're seeing people switch over kind of across the country because it's uh it's free money right so if i can get you five to ten dollars a month in savings and ultimately it covers one month if i tell you one free month of electricity which is what it would end up being um would you would you do it for a free energy bill yeah and so we're seeing people sign up across the country we'd love to see deeper discounts and we might see that based on the inflation reduction act but um Again, really, these markets and these credits are designed so that, um, you know, we're able to give them meaningful savings over the course of a year.
0: OK, fair enough. Um, I want to talk about local grid infrastructure, and in particular, microgrids. This is something that seems to me to have a lot of promise, particularly when tied to community solar. Is there any of that going on? Peter, maybe we'll get. to yeah,
2: yeah, I could take that one. So when you when you say microgrid, um, you know your your description of a industrial park or even an island, uh, microgrid can mean anything from somebody taking their home residence and and creating a situation where they can island off of the grid, or um, it could be an industrial park. Um, so when I when I think about microgrids, they, they play in different ways. Typically. The construct for community solar is driven out of state policy that's requiring those utilities to incentivize renewables. And part of the community solar construct is that the renewable attributes are not necessarily shared with the offtake, and and it it's it's an interesting dynamic there. But in terms of the microgrid piece, I think it actually trickles down to manifests itself at the residential level. You you have a home that cannot fully either install solar for the same discount that Casey mentioned on a, on a relative basis, or they they have, in my case, I live in a neighborhood with a lot of old tall trees and it's a beautiful neighborhood, it's just not great for solar. And so could I subscribe to an array and then balance that renewable energy um, with my vehicle, my home storage, or my own microgrid? And so I think that in the community solar space, it's really manifests at that level. You know, when you when you talk about the island that you live on, it, it kind of excites me because you can have your own microgrid. And, and that, we could talk about that specifically, but that's where you, you see it in Hawaii a lot, where you're seeing large solar arrays with large storage that is essentially a small microgrid to balance that island. And, and there are benefits to it.
0: it. It's just where is it incentivized and, and what is the actual alternative cost? Yeah, I probably should point out for our American... Uh... Uh, Listeners that Vancouver Island is actually pretty big. It's got almost a million people (laughs) on it. It's it's not small. Uh, So um, the but I guess what I'm really getting at here is it fair to say that microgrids aren't going to move into existing neighborhoods? You know, like your neighborhood in in Ohio, uh, because essentially, you know, the distribution network's already built there by the by the utility. It's managed. Why would you put another grid? You know, overlay that on top of. So I guess it's, it's new builds like, you know, subdivisions for homes and industrial parks or, you know, that sort of thing where then, then the community solar makes a lot of sense and maybe you could even tie that into nearby homes. I don't know. I just, am I on the right track here about where microgrids are going to might be paired up with community solar?
2: You're absolutely right that, that taking a, a uh, neighborhood that's already have built out infrastructure, you're getting, especially in Ohio, relatively cheap prices. So justifying a large investment in a home microgrid, it doesn't necessarily make sense unless you are forward thinking and you're willing to use that discretionary money to do that. Um, where it gets interesting with newer neighborhoods or potentially places where the technology can meet the the need you start to have what a lot of people call transactive energy, right? I may not generate as much energy as you need for my home. So I need some from the neighborhood, some from my home. Maybe I balance that with my vehicle and then my neighborhood can use my solar when I'm not there, right? It pushes it back to that microgrid within the, the neighborhood. So that's where I think I get kind of interested where the technology is is there to do this transactive energy. And that's where you say these localized grids and there's some of this happening in Brooklyn, uh, New York, just as as a pilot. That that's where that transactive energy gets really interesting. We have multiple resources in a neighborhood that could be controlled by the residents.
0: Right. I've I've seen a lot of uh, discussion in the in the literature, uh, the academic literature, about flattening of the utility structure, and the utility essentially instead of this vertically integrated uh, entity that looks after generation, transmission, and distribution, the it be, it becomes more oh, like a platform for trading electricity and other services. So, you know, you uh, uh, the, the community, whether it's community solar, rooftop solar, you know, whatever. Uh, it they uh, you you basically become prosumers. And then, if you have batteries, then you there's another layer of, of service that you can provide to the grid. Uh, if you have a microgrid that's maybe also tied to the grid, I mean. It seems like the technology is changing in so rapidly and and uh, and so comprehensively that the options available to communities that want to do this kind of thing are so much more plentiful than they used to be before. More options. Uh, I suppose a little more confusing as well to non-technical people like me. But is, is that fair to, fair to say, uh, Peter, about where the technology is going and the options that are available, uh, you know, to, to communities? Absolutely. You, of course, have that
2: push and pull with the utility, like you mentioned, this flattening. You know, they're investing a lot in the asset to, in their grid to manage and deploy at the highest load time of the day or of the year. And so what you see manifesting in California, which is I think happening in other markets is what's called time of use rates. And I think time of use rates are the easiest way for utilities to lose customers because they the technology, a Tesla Powerwall or a Generac wall or, or whatever, uh, your vehicle plus solar, all of a sudden you don't need the grid at that time when they need you the most to repay their investment. And so it's a, it's a technology is available, the, the cost is starting to come down, especially with energy storage tied to the transportation sector and benefiting from that economies of scale. But it, it it's expensive enough that you really need motivation from a default or a incumbent service to then justify that savings.
0: What about um, Casey? I'll direct this question to you. What about the opportunity for low income households? Um, neighborhoods that are predominantly people of color, rural, uh, rural, small rural communities. Is this an opportunity for them to improve their service, lower their costs?
1: This is a huge opportunity for them. Thanks so much for bringing that up. Um, You know, as we mentioned in my last answer about are people signing up for community solar? Yes, because it's free. Um, It used to be that we would have to do credit checks on everyone who entered into community solar and make sure that they were worthy and credit worthy to participate. But we realized that as long as we were providing a discount to people, that was a meaningful discount. If you build it, they will come. And so um, we were able to remove credit checks on all of Pivot's projects for residential um, that were community solar subscribers. And um, we're doing outreach to low to moderate income Households. we call them income qualified households. Um, states have different requirements. Uh, they're starting to see that community solar can be a policy maker for, for reaching low to moderate income or income qualified households. Um, so it used to be, I think Colorado started with 5%. We're seeing 51% in most markets now. Um, Pivot is actually doing the largest portfolio of 100% donated credits. So we are, doing 41 megawatts of projects here in Colorado that are strictly for uh, income-qualified homeowner or residents to be able to to offset their energy bills and meet that energy burden.
0: Um, Casey, maybe we can wrap up the interview this way. If you could look out uh, two years, five years, 10 years, how do you see community solar developing and spreading?
1: I think that we're gonna see a lot of growth from the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, It incentivizes solar to be placed and service low-income residents, which community solar does beautifully. And so we're also going to see, I think states like Ohio and Pennsylvania, those tipping point states decide to do community solar and say, you know what? There's so much money here. There's so much economic development here that we should be doing it. So We're going to see community solar in some of those states that um, were either low-hanging fruit to turn into community solar states or even states like West Virginia um, that have so many environmental impact communities um, that will be needing for solar. I think as long as we can solve the interconnection problem, which if you want a whole other podcast, we can get into that, um, then we can have you know t- tens of gigawatts of uh, community solar The Community Solar Association here in the U.S. is anticipated 30 gigawatts by 2030. And that's a really ambitious goal. But I think we can get there and spread it to to states far and wide in the U.S. and and bring it up to Canada as well.
0: Well, I I think that it would be a very good idea. Who knows? Maybe uh, you'll be building one outside of Parksville in no time. Well, Peter and Casey, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate it. And uh, good luck with uh, your uh, campaign to build, you know, uh, 30 uh, gigawatts of solar.
1: Excellent. All right. Thank you. you. Have a good day. Bye.